My name is T. Nguyen. I'm Associate Professor of Philosophy at Utah Valley University. Today I'll be reading my paper, Autonomy and Aesthetic Engagement, which was published in Mind in 2019. I'll just be reading the main text here, skipping the citations and the footnotes. If you want to get all those juicy details, you can find a free copy of this paper online at my website, objectionable.net. Autonomy and Aesthetic Engagement Section 1. Introduction There seems to be a deep tension between two aspects of our practice of aesthetic appreciation. First, the practice of aesthetic appreciation seems deeply cognitive. We seem guided by an interest in getting things right. We not only look at art, we investigate it. We form trial judgments and then we go back for more, re-watching and re-reading to make sure we've caught all the details. We talk about the reasons for our judgments, point out the details to one another, and argue about what's truly great. The way we go about aesthetic conversations and investigations seems to indicate that our aesthetic judgments are aimed at the truth. At the same time, we seem committed to principles of individuality and autonomy in aesthetic appreciation. For one, we seem to think that in aesthetic appreciation, we must form our judgments for ourselves. There is a striking disanalogy here between the aesthetic and the empirical realms. In empirical matters, we are often willing to defer to the judgments of others, especially when they are experts. For example, I trust my doctor and take whatever pills she tells me to take. But in aesthetic matters, we do not seem so willing to defer. Something seems wrong with acquiring the aesthetic judgment that Thelonious Monk's solo rendition of Smoke Gets in Your Eyes is brilliantly complex, strictly through the testimony of a jazz expert. This asymmetry has struck some as quite meaningful. Consider a parallel asymmetry in the moral realm. Sarah McGrath argues that our unwillingness to defer to moral experts presents a significant challenge to moral realism. Suppose I was simply aiming at having correct moral beliefs. In that case, when I had good reason to think that some other person was more reliable than me on some moral issue, then I ought to defer. However, such moral deference strikes us as deeply wrong. It can start to seem, then, as if we weren't really aiming at correctness at all. The best explanation of this asymmetry, some suggest, is moral expressivism, the view that our moral judgments express our individual commitments or subjective responses, rather than being assertions of objective truths. Notice that these arguments apply just as well to the aesthetic realm. Perhaps, then, our commitment to aesthetic autonomy reveals that aesthetic judgments are simply expressions of our own responses, rather than assertions aimed at capturing objective truths. These strands pull us in different directions. The cognitive aspects of aesthetic life suggest that aesthetic claims are largely objective. Our demand for autonomy suggests that they are largely subjective. This seems puzzling. As Kant put it, if aesthetic judgments are grounded primarily in our own felt responses, then what basis could we have for demanding agreement? One standard response is to commit to some form of subjectivism about aesthetic judgment, and then to offer an alternative explanation for all that seemingly cognitive behavior of arguing, discussing, and investigating. This is, perhaps, Kant's path. Kane Todd has offered such an approach in his modernized take on Kant. Says Todd, aesthetic judgments express our own attitudes rather than being assertions of truth. But we have social reasons to express those attitudes as if we were asserting truths. For example, we might be trying to demand agreement or urging others to share our responses. Approaches like this treat the demand for autonomy as weighing decisively in favor of subjectivism, 
and then attempt to provide an accommodating explanation for our apparently cognitive behavior. I will attempt to resolve the tension between autonomy and cognitivity in the opposite direction. I will suggest that aesthetic judgments are cognitive and then offer an accommodating explanation for our requirement for autonomy. In my account, aesthetic judgments can be straightforwardly correct or incorrect, but the reason we seek correct judgment in aesthetic appreciation differs from the reason for which we seek it in ordinary empirical life. In much of practical empirical life, we value having the correct judgments themselves. We engage in the activity of inquiry for the sake of its products. In aesthetic appreciation, on the other hand, we value the activity of forming judgments more than we do getting our judgments right. In this way, the practice of aesthetic appreciation has a motivational structure similar to that of playing a game. In much of gameplay, we aim at winning, but winning isn't the point. Playing is. In much of our aesthetic lives, we aim at correct aesthetic judgments, but actually having them isn't the point. The process of seeking them is. Our dedication to aesthetic autonomy reveals that we value aesthetic engagement over aesthetic conclusions. Section 2. Autonomy and Acquaintance The importance of aesthetic autonomy, however, has been masked in the recent conversation by the dominance of a distinct consideration, that of aesthetic acquaintance. The first task, then, is to distinguish between these two very different demands. The demand for aesthetic acquaintance is the demand that one's aesthetic judgment of an object proceed from one's direct experience of that object. The demand for aesthetic autonomy, on the other hand, is the demand that one come to one's aesthetic conclusions through one's own efforts. Aesthetic acquaintance asks that we experience the thing for ourselves, while aesthetic autonomy asks that we draw our conclusions for ourselves. And it is the demand for aesthetic autonomy, I think, that will prove key in understanding the value of aesthetic engagement. But the demands for autonomy and acquaintance have sometimes been confused. And when they are distinguished, more attention has been paid to the demand for acquaintance. So let's start by getting clearer about these two demands. The demand for autonomy concerns the degree to which aesthetic judgments arise through our own efforts. We can state that demand in the form of a principle. Autonomy principle. One ought to arrive at one's aesthetic judgments through the application of one's own faculties and abilities. According to this principle, one ought to do one's own aesthetic thinking, investigating, interpreting, and the like. One should not outsource aesthetic judgments to, say, the experts, even if they are known to be more reliable. I mean aesthetic judgments here in a broad sense, including both judgments about the presence of a particular aesthetic property in the object, like sensuousness or delicacy, as well as overall evaluative judgments. One should decide for oneself whether Jackson Pollock is empty or profound, whether Thelonious Monk's music is full of bizarre angles or sensuous textures. The second principle is one of acquaintance, which posits a demand for direct experience. Acquaintance principle. One ought to arrive at an aesthetic judgment on the basis of one's own direct experience of the object of judgment. According to this principle, we need to have actually heard John Coltrane's Africa Brass for ourselves, or tasted those lengua tacos for ourselves, in order to render an aesthetic judgment. The acquaintance principle makes demands about our getting the direct aesthetic input for ourselves, while the autonomy principle makes demands about our coming to conclusions for ourselves. These two principles often rear their heads in the discussion of the legitimacy of acquiring aesthetic beliefs via testimony. We seem to have the intuition that we should not acquire aesthetic judgments from bare testimonial reports. 
This intuition is often taken to support the so-called pessimistic view of aesthetic testimony, that we cannot gain aesthetic belief through testimony. Notice that both the autonomy principle and the acquaintance principle have the resource to, to explain this intuition. In acquiring an aesthetic judgment from bare testimony, I have both failed to go through the cognitive processes for myself and failed to directly experience the object of my judgment for myself. The discussion of aesthetic testimony often treats the two principles as competing explanations for the same set of intuitions, and then proceeds to try to figure out which principle offers the better explanation. For example, Hopkins considers the following argument in favor of the acquaintance principle over the autonomy principle. The autonomy principle, he says, licenses too much. It would license acquiring aesthetic judgments through inductive reasoning, so long as that reasoning was performed autonomously. Suppose I have seen 50 pieces of abstract expressionism and find them all pleasingly textured and rich. I have not seen Rothko's number six rust and blue, but I form the aesthetic judgment that it too is pleasingly textured and rich, based on induction from my observations of other pieces of abstract expressionism. Notice that the cognitive processes involved are all my own. Still, this seems the wrong way to go about making aesthetic judgments. The autonomy principle, says Hopkins, cannot account for what's wrong with aesthetic judgments. Only the acquaintance principle can. It says that I should actually experience number 61 itself before I render any aesthetic judgments of that work. Reasoning from induction violates that requirement. For reasons like this, the conversation about deference and aesthetic testimony has largely come to a revolve around the acquaintance principle. Section 3. The Case for Autonomy the acquaintance principle certainly explains what is wrong with making aesthetic judgments from induction in a way that the autonomy principle cannot. But the acquaintance principle by itself cannot explain other parts of the story. Consider the following case. Audio tour. Brandon considers himself to be an art lover. Whenever he goes to a museum, he rents the audio tour and explores the museum at its direction. He looks at the paintings he is told to look at, studies those details which are called to his attention, and always assents to the auditor's judgment of the quality, importance, and aesthetic properties present based on those details. He never looks for any details that aren't specified by the auditor, nor does he ever form aesthetic judgments without the explicit guidance and suggestion of an auditor. But he does make sure to look at each specified painting, and to find and note any specified detail, before allowing himself to accept the suggested judgment and he only accepts the suggested judgment when he sees the relevant aesthetic properties for himself after permitting his attention to be entirely directed by the audio tour. Furthermore, he conducts his entire aesthetic life in this manner. He does not use the audio tours as a jumping off point for further exploration, but always seeks expert guidance to direct his engagement with any artwork he encounters. He never attempts to establish his own views when such guidance is unavailable. Brandon's life is missing something important. It might be perfectly fine to begin one's aesthetic education with audio tours, or to use them as a jumping-off point for further reflection. But Brandon's use of audio tours isn't just a step along the way. It is the totality and endpoint of his aesthetic activity. His aesthetic life seems to not be fully realized. He lacks independence, we want to say. He does not engage with the artworks in the right way. But notice that only the autonomy principle can explain what's missing from Brandon's aesthetic life. He is certainly acquainted with the aesthetic properties, and his judgments are formed on the basis of direct experience of an aesthetic object and its relevant aesthetic qualities. 
What's wrong with Brandon's conduct is not a lack of acquaintance. It is that he is aesthetically subservient. He is failing to reach his conclusions through the application of his own faculties and resources. He is letting another direct his attention and suggest interpretations and conclusions. Though he is certainly engaging some of his capacities, such as the ones required to see details and to, cra- to grasp interpretations, he is not engaging his higher-order capacities for aesthetic agency. He isn't choosing, choosing which details to attend to. He isn't forming his own interpretations or using them to guide his attention and investigation. He is not entirely lacking in aesthetic autonomy, but he is missing a substantial part of it. The autonomy principle by itself cannot explain what's wrong with induction, and the acquaintance principle by itself cannot explain what's wrong with Audiotor Brandon. The best account, then, is not that these two principles are competing explanations of the same phenomenon, but they, they are both normatively active. Each principle articulates a different demand bearing on our aesthetic judgment. It will be useful to compare Audiotor Brandon with something of an opposite case. Independent and inductive. Kate watches a lot of movies and forms strong, personal, carefully thought-out reactions to all of them. After she has seen enough movies from a director or production group, she will sometimes begin to also form some inductive judgments. She states these judgments without qualification. For example, she will say that Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight is clever, perverse, and postmodern without having seen it herself, based entirely on induction from previous experiences with Quentin Tarantino's movies. She will also say that Justice League is boring, corporate, ponderous, and generally worthless without having seen it for herself based on induction from previous experiences with Warner Brothers' versions of DC comic book properties. What will we say about Audiotor Brandon and Inductive Kate? Notice that we might challenge certain of Kate's claims. I would not accept her particular judgment that Justice League was boring or that Hateful Eight was clever precisely because she lacks direct acquaintance. However, I would also think that, in general, her aesthetic life was going quite well, though I would complain that some of her particular expressions of aesthetic judgments were misleading or unfounded. My reaction to Audiotor Brandon is the reverse. I would accept particular aesthetic judgments of his, say that Van Gogh's irises displayed a bold and impactful use of line, which reveals a subtle influence from Hokusai. I might, admittedly, accept those aesthetic judgments with a bit of an eye roll, but I wouldn't throw them out altogether. I trust Brandon to be a good conveyor of reliable aesthetic judgment, at least enough to allow his expressed judgments to direct my action and attention. However, I also think that Brandon is living a much more impoverished aesthetic life than Kate. If I were Brandon's friend, I would push him to make more judgments for himself, to let his attention roam in his own direction not only to feel for himself, but to discover for himself the aesthetic intricacies of these artworks. If he said that he was afraid of getting something wrong, I would reply that getting all your facts in a row wasn't the be-all and end-all of aesthetic life. Inductive Kate, on the other hand, seems to be leading a rich and fulfilling aesthetic life, albeit one plagued by the occasional bizarre overreach. I might urge Kate to temper the exact wordings of her claims, but not to change the basic contour of her aesthetic life. Audiotor Brandon, on the other hand, is fully entitled to the particular content of each of his claims, but he seems to be missing out on something much more galactic. I have suggested that the autonomy principle can help to explain the asymmetry between aesthetic and empirical testimony. But one might worry, the autonomy principle can't do all that explanatory work because it is, in fact, a general requirement for all agents in all domains. 
After all, shouldn't we always think for ourselves, direct our own attention, and come up with our own theories about the world? How could a general principle uh, of agency account for the asymmetry between the aesthetic and the empirical? As a matter of fact, I do not think that we demand the same form of autonomy in both the aesthetic and empirical domains. Let's distinguish between two forms of intellectual autonomy, direct autonomy and indirect autonomy. To have direct intellectual autonomy over a given judgment, we need to grasp all the reasons, evidence, and considerations which support the content of that judgment for ourselves. To have indirect intellectual autonomy over a judgment, we can acquire that judgment through testimony from a trusted source, provided that we grasp the reasons for our trust. Indirect autonomy is the weaker requirement. We need only understand our trust in the external sources of our judgments, rather than understanding the contents of the judgments themselves. In our life with the sciences, the best we can hope for is indirect autonomy over most of the domains on which we depend. Contemporary science is so vast that no individual can hope to possess direct intellectual autonomy over all the scientific judgments which they must use. As Elijah Milgram puts it, the character of modern epistemic life is dominated by the hyper-specialization of expert domains. Non-scientists must trust the judgments of scientific experts without being able to understand those experts' reasons. And even among the specialists, each expert must depend on the judgment of other experts without being able to fully grasp the ground for all those judgments for themselves. Doctors must trust the biologists, chemists and engineers behind their instruments. Nobody can understand all the fields of science on their own. The best they can do is to manage their trust in others with some degree of autonomy. We can now better articulate the key asymmetry. In empirical life, we demand only indirect autonomy, but in aesthetic life, we demand direct autonomy. There are, then, two different possible specifications of the autonomy principle. Direct autonomy principle. One ought to arrive at one's aesthetic judgments of an object through the application of one's own faculties and abilities without the use of testimony. Indirect autonomy principle. One ought to arrive at one's aesthetic judgments of an object through the application of one's own faculties and abilities, including acquiring judgments about the objects through testimony, as long as the choice of testimonial sources arises through the application of one's own faculties and abilities. My claim is that in aesthetic appreciation, we demand the direct autonomy principle. We do not make the analogous demand in empirical scientific life. There, we only ask for the much weaker indirect form of intellectual autonomy. Why this difference? I will argue that it is because science and art appreciation have very different purposes. In art appreciation, we aim at making correct aesthetic judgments. But having correct judgment isn't the purpose of the practice. Our purpose is to engage in the activity of trying to make correct judgments. We shouldn't defer to aesthetic testimony because figuring it out for ourselves is the whole point. On the other hand, we demand indirect autonomy in an empirical life because we significantly value getting things right and that value often outweighs the values associated with doing things for ourselves. The account also suggests a larger picture, which might help to illuminate the complex relationship between the acquaintance principle and the various forms of the autonomy principle. Let me briefly sketch that picture. Suppose for the moment that we accept the common view that the acquaintance principle captures a constitutive feature of aesthetic judgment. In that case, we could understand the two principles as arising from different considerations. The acquaintance principle concerns what it is to be in an aesthetic judgment, while the direct autonomy principle arises from our purpose in making aesthetic judgments. 
Let's call this the split-level view. It separates the norms involved into those arising from the constitutive level of explanation and those arising from the value level. The split-level view would resolve the seeming competition between the acquaintance principle and the direct autonomy principle. And it would explain why we think Adiotor Brandon is missing some of the point of aesthetic life, though we would allow that he is still engaged in aesthetic activity. He is not entirely outside the realm of aesthetic appreciation as, say, would be somebody that invested in paintings for economic reasons, based on purchasing trends. He's in the right domain, but half asleep at the wheel. The split-level view strikes me as quite plausible, but I will leave it aside for further exploration. Section 4. What is the value of direct autonomy? Let's retreat to the more local claim to which I will devote the rest of this paper. The direct autonomy principle, I proposed, can be explained by a particular story about the motivational structure of art appreciation. That the value of aesthetic appreciation lies in or arises from the processes of engagement involved in forming aesthetic judgments. Aesthetic engagement here includes our higher level cognition of aesthetic objects. Searching for connections, rethinking interpretations, discovering affective resonances, and so on. It also includes low-level forms of engagement, such as perceptual engagement, actively shifting one's attention from one perceptual detail to the next, and then assembling those details into a larger structure. And it includes the way these forms of engagement feed into one another, as my interpretation and effective responses influence where I direct my attention and vice versa. Aesthetic engagement includes all the perceptual, cognitive, and effective processes we actively deploy on our way to generating an aesthetic judgment. Here is my proposal. We perform the various aesthetic activities of perception and investigation for the sake of our involvement in the activity of seeking correct judgments, rather than for the sake of actually having made correct judgments. In other words, though the aesthetic activity of appreciation usually culminates in the issuance of aesthetic judgments, that activity is not made valuable by the issuance of those judgments or by their correctness. Rather, we aim at making correct judgments for the sake of engaging in the attempt to get them right. Let us call this the engagement account of aesthetic value. The engagement account states that the primary value of the activity of aesthetic appreciation comes from the process of generating judgments and not the end product, the judgments themselves. In some sense, the engagement account is quite intuitive. I listen to music for the sake of the listening itself, and not for the sake of having made correct judgments about the quality of the music. But this simple observation has many philosophical dividends. The account answers our question about the value of direct autonomy. The demand for a direct autonomy is important because it encourages aesthetic engagement. Furthermore, the engagement account explains the asymmetry between aesthetic judgment and scientific judgment. The reason we defer to expert testimony in the sciences, but not in aesthetic appreciation, is that getting correct judgments is the primary source of value in the sciences. However, in the practice of aesthetic appreciation, getting correct judgments is less important than the processes we go through in forming those judgments for ourselves. What might the value be in directly autonomous aesthetic engagement? Let's step back a moment and consider our complicated relationship to aesthetic testimony and aesthetic judgment. Audio tours and other forms of critical guidance can play a crucial role in a healthy, well-balanced aesthetic life. There are many felicitous uses of aesthetic testimony, and many contexts where we happily relax our demand for aesthetic autonomy. The problem for Brandon is not in his use of the audio tour, but in his disinclination to move past it. 
Much, then, seems to depend on how exactly the aesthetic appreciator uses aesthetic testimony. Is their use open-ended or closed-ended? Some ways of using aesthetic testimony seem to quickly terminate one's aesthetic engagement. For example, when two friends are involved in an aesthetic dispute, it seems wrong simply to turn to some expert to settle the matter. Suppose we were to disagree about the aesthetic value of Satoshi Kon's psychedelic anime, Paprika, and I tried to settle it once and for all by consulting the review aggregation site, Rotten Tomatoes, and pointing out that 83% of critics had rendered a positive judgment. The way I'm using aesthetic testimony here skims off a supposedly authoritative overall evaluation of the film, while leaving me out of touch with the particular reasons for that evaluation. This relationship to testimony cuts me off from the specific attention-guiding features of critical discussion. It terminates my engagement with the aesthetic details. If, on the other hand, I reacted to our dispute by reading essays from sensitive film critics, re-watching the movie while attending to the features those critics pointed out, and then using what I learned in further engagements with film, then my use of testimony seems unproblematic. That is the engagement-encouraging use of aesthetic testimony. A problem with Audio Tour Brandon is not simply that he lets his attention be directed by an authoritative source. Rather, it is that he terminates his engagement there, rather than using those authoritative directions as springboards to further engagement. But the problem here isn't simply about how deference can limit the quantity of engagement available to the guided appreciator. Fully autonomous engagement seems qualitatively better. A crucial part of the activity of aesthetic appreciation lies not only in the content and order of attention, but in the fact that the appreciator actively chooses where to direct their attention. An autonomous appreciator is an agent with respect to their attention. And that agency helps to cultivate a different kind of attention and a different mental relationship with the object of their attention. That is, in a very intuitive sense, what it means to be truly engaged. One analyzes the input and decides which features to attend to next, which possibilities to explore. One inhabits one's investigations more fully when one has to guide them from moment to moment. There is a useful parallel in Mill's discussion of the value of free speech. Mill thought that one needs constantly to defend one's beliefs in order to keep them alive. Without the pressure to actively rethink, reconsider, and reformulate, one's beliefs would fall into habit and routine, they would transition from live beliefs into mere words, the shell and husk only. Beliefs need to be constantly defended through a process of analysis and inquiry to maintain, quote, a livelier feeling of the meaning of their creed, end quote. Aesthetic engagement strikes me as playing a similar role. Active engagement keeps one's aesthetic judgments alive in one's mind. Notice that invaluable engagement can arise in the process of rendering either a positive or negative judgment. It can be a valuable form of engagement to critically analyze a movie and to come, after significant consideration, to realize that it is hollow and manipulative. The engagement account, then, is quite distinct from those views on which the value of aesthetic appreciation is to be found exclusively in positive aesthetic judgments or the experience of valuable aesthetic properties. Such accounts restrict the value of aesthetic appreciation to making correct judgments of aesthetically good objects. The engagement account, I think, better captures the varied paths to aesthetic value. For example, I used to have a very uncritical relationship with food. I ate TV dinners and fast food. I liked food that was crunchy and salty, and that was the end of the matter. Then I took a trip with a more culinarily cosmopolitan friend and became exposed to more subtle, complex, and interesting food. 
my sensibilities developed and my tastes transformed. When I returned to my small town, with its limited repertoire of fast food joints and frozen food, those samey-samey burgers and fish sticks had lost their appeal. After that, I had to travel a long way to find any culinary satisfaction. As a result of my culinary awakening, I found myself making far fewer positive aesthetic judgments. If the quality of my aesthetic life was dependent simply on the number of positive aesthetic judgments I made, then my aesthetic life would simply have got worse. But this seems like the wrong way to think about the story. I'd learned something, and my aesthetic life had got better in some important ways, even if that didn't have a clear cash value in terms of an increased quantity of positive aesthetic judgments. A proponent of such a positive account of value could try to respond by saying that the value of greater understanding lay in my clearing the ground of the crud and making room for better pleasures. But notice that I only get that payoff if I have adequate access to better quality aesthetic objects, which isn't the case in my food story. Consider instead what the engagement account has to say about this sort of life arc. The engagement account is free to distribute the value through all sorts of activities involved with generating judgments. Rendering a negative judgment of of an object through sensitive engagement with its particularities can, in and of itself, be a valuable activity. Of course, a life full of only negative judgments of boring objects would be lacking many distinctive kinds of aesthetic value. It would lack, for example, the values associated with having deep and lasting engagement with complex and subtle works. But coming to have negative judgments through an engaged process is certainly part of the value story. This line of thinking opens the door to all sorts of other possibilities. For example, we might have thought that we had long conversations about art in order to get the right judgments. The engagement account suggests, instead, that we might be pursuing correct judgments so that we can have all those lovely, careful conversations. Section 5. Correctness and Engagement How, then, are we to square an engagement-centric picture of value with the apparent drive for aesthetic correctness? I mean correctness here in several senses. We want to attribute the right aesthetic properties to the work. We want to have the correct overall judgments of the aesthetic quality and worth of a work. And we want those judgments and attributions to be responsive to genuine details in the work. And, as Fabian Dorsch points out, we expect our aesthetic interlocutors to be able to provide reasons for their aesthetic judgments, to defend their claims and point out supporting details, or we lose respect for them. What's more, we don't simply stop when we have a pleasing response or interpretation of a work. We push on to make sure that our response is sensitive to the complex actuality of the work. Without that drive to correctness, we would be tempted to stop thinking about the work as soon as we are pleased by it. We would not have any reason to push on, since we might end up discovering some subtle flaw that shattered our enjoyment. One might then be tempted to reason in the following way. Since my actions are oriented towards the goal of correctness, the purpose of the practice of aesthetic judgment must itself be correctness. But I do not think that this is right. The goal at which we aim during an activity is not necessarily the same as our purpose for taking up the activity, nor is achieving the local goal the only possible source of value for an activity. Some people try to catch fish to achieve a certain meditative state of mind, and some people try to climb mountains for the sake of their health. I myself relax after a hard day of philosophy by doing some rock climbing. Notice that I pursue my larger purpose, relaxation, by focusing on a local goal, getting to the top of the rock. 
but it doesn't actually matter for my purposes if I really do get to the top. It only matters that in trying to get to the top, I manage to clear my head. This complex relationship between goals and purposes is, I think, easiest to see when they are formalized in games. In every game, there is a goal. For simplicity's sake, let's say that the goal of a game is winning. There are two kinds of motivational states one might take towards gameplay. First, one might play the game for the sake of the value of winning or what follows from winning. Call this achievement play. Second, one might take on the goal of winning for the sake of the activity of trying to win. Call this striving play. We can find evidence of striving play in many of our game-playing practices. First, consider our long-term manipulations of our capacity to win a game. When I play board games with my spouse, we both try our best to win. But so long as our matches are close and exciting, we will avoid, say, reading strategy guides on our own. We are trying not to outpace each other. If one of us becomes significantly more skillful than the other, then the contest would lose its savor. This reveals that we are striving players and not achievement players. Winning is not the point for us. We each pursue winning locally during the game itself, but in the long term, we manipulate our abilities not for the sake of maximizing our wins, but for the sake of the quality of the struggle. Next, consider what we might call stupid games. A stupid game is one where the best part of the game is losing, but failure is only fun if you are actively pursuing the win. Examples of stupid games include Twister, the children's game of telephone, and many drinking games. With stupid games, we must aim at success, but what we actually want is to fail in the attempt. In stupid games, our goal and our purpose clearly come apart. If we can play stupid games, then striving play must be possible. Striving play contains a motivational inversion. In normal, practical life, one takes the means for the sake of the ends. In striving play, one selects the ends for the sake of the means it puts one through. It is simple, then, to square the engagement account with the apparent goal of correctness. We need only allow that aesthetic appreciation is a striving activity. In aesthetic appreciation, we aim at correctness, but correctness is not the purpose. It is only the right goal to adopt in order to become engaged in a desirable form of activity. I am not claiming that the practice of aesthetic appreciation is a game, but I am claiming that it has a similarly inverted motivational structure. Importantly, this does not commit me to the view that aesthetic engagement is intrinsically valuable. Let's return to games for the moment. The distinction between striving play and achievement play is not the same as the distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic value. The intrinsic-extrinsic value distinction concerns whether something is valuable in itself or whether it is valuable as a means to an end. The striving-achievement play distinction, on the other hand, concerns where that value adheres. It is possible to be an intrinsic achievement player and play for the value of the win itself, or to be an extrinsic achievement player and play for the value of what follows from the win, like money or honor. Similarly, it is possible to be an intrinsic striving player and play for the intrinsic value of the striving itself, or an extrinsic striving player and play for the value of what follows from striving, as I might if, say, I ran marathons for my health. Thus, in claiming that aesthetic appreciation is a striving activity, I am only claiming that the value adheres to the activity of appreciation rather than to the ends of that activity. I leave open the question of whether that activity is intrinsically or extrinsically valuable. Certainly, 
one could think that the activity is valuable in itself. However, the engagement account is also compatible with views that attribute extrinsic value to aesthetic engagement. Consider, for example, the lingering effect of aesthetic experiences. For example, the fact that, after a day of looking at paintings in museums, one's experiences of the rest of the world is enhanced. The pursuit of that positive after-effect still counts as a striving activity, so long as it is the process of engagement that creates the lingering after-effect. I have reason to judge for myself, rather than deferring to others, since it is the act of judging for myself that leads to the extrinsically valuable consequence. Of course, this invites a further question. Why is the pursuit of aesthetic correctness a valuable activity? One might think that aesthetic engagement might be improved if it were freed from the burden of correctness. Why not just let our imagination run free and ascribe to the world whatever aesthetic properties and make whatever aesthetic judgments we wished? The analogy with games is particularly useful here. In Bernard Suits' account of games, to play a game is to take on the pursuit of some goal, along with some unnecessary restrictions and obstacles on achieving that goal, for the sake of the activity they make possible. The goal of games aren't usually valuable in themselves. The nature of a game's goal can usually be best explained in terms of the nature of the activity it inspires. In basketball, there's no special value in getting this ball through the hoop in and of itself. We want to get the ball through the hoop while facing opponents and obeying the dribbling constraint because we want to engage in the activity of dodging, jumping, and shooting. We want to get to the top of this cliff by going the hard way, up the steep face using only our hands and feet, because we want to engage in the particular activity of rock climbing. We want to be forced to coordinate delicate balance and powerful, graceful, precise movement in a unified effort to surmount the challenges of the rock. Notice the relationship here between the activity, the goal, and the rules. In free climbing, the climber must ascend only by using their hands and feet, applied only to the rock itself. They are not allowed to pull on the rope or the various pieces of gear attached to the rock. The rope is only there as a safety measure. Some novice climbers complain about these strange restrictions. The requirement to ascend by using only the rock strikes them as annoyingly arbitrary. Why submit to these restrictions when one could just swing around on the rope as one pleases? Experienced climbers, however, understand the purpose of these restrictions. When you are allowed to ascend by pulling on the rope and the gear, then you end up repeating the same sorts of movements on any sort of rock. The requirement to ascend only using features of the rock itself forces the climber to attend to the distinctive details of each different rock face. It forces the climber to invent new and creative solutions in response to the widely varying details of the rock. We can offer a similar explanation for our practice of aesthetic appreciation. As with rock climbing, aesthetic appreciation is a practice which involves pursuing a goal inside certain restrictions. We are to try to arrive at correct aesthetic judgments through the use of our own faculties without deferring to others. As with climbing, the goal and the restrictions can be explained in terms of the form of activity they inspire. The aim of getting correct aesthetic judgments via our own faculties and abilities drives us toward a very particular sort of activity, one that is oriented around sensitivity, refinement, care, and responsiveness to detail. If my aesthetic activities weren't oriented towards getting it right, I would be free to imagine and impose as I please. I would have motiva no motivation to stick to the details of the object and thus no reason to study that object with care. 
Such freeform activity is likely to satisfy one set of interests, say, in having imaginative freedom, unfettered creativity, and the like. But we bring to bear an entirely different set of capacities when we aim at correct aesthetic judgment. In aesthetic appreciation, we engage in perception and cognition under the requirement of loyalty to the details of external objects in all their peculiar differentness. The best explanation of our demand for direct autonomy and aesthetic appreciation, then, is that we value the specific form of activity involved in pursuing correct aesthetic judgment. We value the process of hunting for subtle details that we missed the first time around, or struggling to create interpretations that fit with the rich actuality of the world. The parallel with games is, I think, particularly useful in thinking about why we avoid deferring to aesthetic testimony and aesthetic experts. As Suits points out, gameplay is, by its very nature, essentially inefficient with respect to its in-game goals. We aim at the end of crossing the finish line of the marathon, with the restrictions of not taking a taxi or riding a bicycle, in order to engage in the activity of running. Aesthetic appreciation is, in a similar way, inefficient in its pursuit of correctness. If we thought the goal of aesthetic appreciation was correctness, then we would be interested in maximally efficient pathways to that goal, such as being guided by experts or acquiring beliefs through testimony. We refuse to defer precisely because that restriction drives us towards a particular form of valuable activity. The aesthetic appreciator who defers to testimony, then, is making the same mistake as the marathon runner who takes a taxi to the finish line. They mistakenly take the local goal for the purpose of the activity and thereby miss out on the real value. Their shortcut defeats the whole point. The parallel structure will be even clearer if we consider more overtly intellectual games. When I am reading a certain sort of traditional mystery novel, I am trying to figure out who the culprit is ahead of the big reveal. Notice a few things about the activity of puzzling through a mystery novel. First, there is a correct answer to my questions. Second, I don't value knowing those answers simply for the sake of the knowledge itself. Otherwise, I would turn to the last page or read the spoilers on Wikipedia, thus saving myself the time and effort of actually reading the book. Third, the inverted motivational structure of striving explains why I don't simply look up the answers online. Puzzling through a mystery novel is a striving activity. We chase the right answers by inefficient means for the sake of the struggle. The practice of aesthetic appreciation involves a similarly inverted value structure. We make our judgment autonomously because deference to another would be like flipping to the end of the book. We now have an explanation for the so-called pessimistic intuitions about aesthetic testimony. Why does it seem so wrong to us to acquire aesthetic judgments through testimony? It isn't because we cannot transmit aesthetic knowledge through testimony. Rather, it is because getting that knowledge through testimony would defeat the whole point of the exercise. Notice, too, that the engagement account has the resources to explain the complexities of our variable willingness to use testimony from aesthetic experts. For example, we seem willing to use expert testimony to give us recommendations about what movies to watch and which restaurants to try, but we seem unwilling to defer to their expertise in, our forming, in forming our own judgments. This is nicely explained by the engagement account. Experts are good guides to the sorts of objects that can sustain a long, involved, and satisfying engagement. So when we trust their recommendations and pay attention to what they recommend, we are more likely to have such engagements. But if we defer to their judgments rather than coming up with our own, then we will skip over the very process of engagement which we value. 
The best way to use testimony to foster equality engagement, then, is to use testimony as a guide for where to devote our attention, but not as a substitute for the ensuing process of judgment. The engagement account can also explain another asymmetry, which has been called Kant's problem of aesthetic testimony. Suppose I have listened to Migos' Atlanta trap classic, Culture, a handful of times and found it repetitive and dull. Then my musically sensitive friend and trusted confidant tells me that it is, in fact, a revolution in rap because of how it displays its rhythmic patterns to create new kinds of musical space, and that I've missed its subtle but profound groove. This gives me a reason to listen again and reconsider my judgment. As Hawkins puts it, we take contrary aesthetic testimony to be capable of inspiring doubt, to give us reason to reconsider something. But I will not, of course, simply adopt my musically sensitive friend's judgment outright. Here is the problem. What force could aesthetic testimony have that it could provide negative weight for inspiring doubt, but at the same time fail to provide a positive basis for deference? As Karen Gordeski and Eric Marcus put it, Kant's problem is how to thread the needle between doubt and deference. It looks as though any explanation which can ground the doubt from testimony will also force us to defer to contrary judgments when the source is sufficiently expert. Gorodeski and Marcus offer a complex Kantian solution for threading that needle. But the engagement account offers us a different and considerably simpler solution. We have sculpted a practice of aesthetic appreciation with norms set to drive us towards greater engagement. We permit testimony to raise doubt because adopting that norm will drive us toward greater engagement. The norms will generate reasons to look again and increase the likelihood of paying attention to works that can sustain deeper engagement. But we don't permit deference to testimony in forming our judgment because that would cut off any deeper engagement. The norm that permits doubt from testimony is engagement enhancing, but the norm that permits deference to testimony is engagement terminating. The permission to doubt from testimony, but the prohibition on deference to testimony, are good norms to have because, together, they sculpt the practice of aesthetic appreciation in a way that supports greater engagement. Importantly, the engagement account is intended only as an analysis of the practice of aesthetic appreciation. There are other practices in the aesthetic domain with other purposes to which the engagement account does not apply. Consider, for example, the practice of art history. Art history is oriented towards the generation of correct historical facts. It is, therefore, not a striving activity. Thus, the account I've offered can explain the practice-dependent variability of our demand for strong autonomy. When my friends and I are in a museum talking about the absence or presence of gracefulness in a particular painting, we ought not defer to the judgments of others. On the other hand, if I'm an art historian and I'm trying to track the movement of a particular style through various places, I sometimes ought to defer. The reason we hold fast to the direct autonomy principle in the appreciation case, but not in the art history case, is that we are invoking different practices with different purposes. The value in art appreciation lies more in the process of judgment than in having correct judgments. Art historians, on the other hand, are more interested in the correct judgments themselves. These different purposes indicate different norms of autonomy. Section 6. Conclusions One might then ask why we are expending all this effort on such an odd pursuit. Why spend all this energy cognitively struggling over paintings and not over, say, solving world poverty? If we don't care about the correctness of aesthetic judgments, ought we not to get our cognitive kicks where it might be of some use to the world? Consider a parallel worry concerning games. 
Thomas Herka argues that the value of playing games comes from their difficulty. Thus, so long as we're not in utopia, it will be better to do things that are both difficult and instrumentally good. For example, if playing chess and working to cure cancer are both equally difficult, then the latter is to be preferred, for it is both difficult and useful. Herka's conclusion, I think, misses much about the special value of games. The right response to Herka is that the value of games lies not only in their difficulty, but in the experiential quality of that difficulty, and whether the struggle is interesting, dull, or fascinating. Games are special because, in games, we are significantly freer to shape the nature and demands of the tasks to suit us. In ordinary practical life, our instrumental engagement is significantly constrained by the goal and the inflexibility of the world. The world can render our pursuits exhausting, dull, and full of miserable grinds. The search for scientific truth, for example, might involve some incredibly satisfying intellectual epiphanies, but the nature of the world means that it will also involve a lot of mucking about with spreadsheets, fixing instruments, and digging through the hard soil under the brutal summer sun. Chess, on the other hand, is a practical activity optimized for the pleasures and satisfactions of cognition. The nature of its goal and the logic of its mechanics shape a very particular practical environment, one that has been made specifically for our cognitive delight. In ordinary practical life, we must bend ourselves and desperately try to fit our abilities to the practical demands of the world. In games, we can design a practical world to fit our abilities and our inclinations. Something similar is true, I suggest, with the arts. The activities and states involved in rendering aesthetic judgments, for example, investigation, sensitivity to perceptual and cognitive details, interpretation, empathy, are also instrumental resources. In ordinary practical life, our use of these resources is beholden to the instrumental demands of the world. The arts, on the other hand, are precisely where we can mold the object of judgment and also pick the constraints on how we are to judge those objects in order to shape the activity of deploying these instrumental resources to our own satisfaction. I hope it is clear by now that the demand for direct autonomy isn't unique to aesthetic appreciation. We should expect demands for indirect autonomy to dominate in practices oriented towards the value of correctness itself, the empirical sciences, history, and the judicial system. We should expect demands for direct autonomy to dominate in those practices oriented towards the value of engagement in a process, aesthetic appreciation, but also games, exercise, education, and more. We should expect to find a demand for direct autonomy for any activity with the motivational structure of striving rather than of achievement. Much of the discussion of the asymmetry between empirical judgment and aesthetic judgment has presumed that our peculiar attitude towards aesthetic testimony arises from features unique to the aesthetic domain. Instead, my account suggests that it is a general feature of striving activities. Aesthetic appreciation is one type of striving activity, but there are others. And there are non-striving approaches to the aesthetic as well. This explains another asymmetry, why we are more willing to use aesthetic testimony in art historical contexts, but less willing in art appreciative contexts. An account that made autonomy a necessary part of any aesthetic judgment would not be able to explain that secondary asymmetry. The engagement account, however, has a tidy explanation. Art appreciation is a striving activity, but art history is not. The engagement account might also explain a crucial and underexplored aspect of our relationship with art and the aesthetic. 
We seek to understand works, but we are disappointed when we reach that understanding too quickly. We wish to understand artworks, but when the artworks are too easily understood, we judge them poorly. We call them shallow or thin. By many accounts, the greatest works are the ones that are the most endlessly accommodating of interpretation and inquiry. I love the poet Tu Fu precisely because I try to understand him and never get to the end. Every time I reread a verse, I find some new subtlety or connection. The engagement account explains this. Correct aesthetic judgment is the goal, but not the purpose. Thus, we are disappointed when our fascinating journey is cut off by our too quick arrival at the apparent destination. At the same time, we cannot undermine the sincerity of our attempts at correctness to forestall such a finish, for that would undermine our absorption in the investigative attempt. We want objects which we can sincerely try to understand thoroughly, but which endlessly defy a complete understanding. We want subtlety, depth, and mystery. But the engagement account also helps to explain why most beloved artworks are, typically, not purely ambiguous. For a blank or impossibly cryptic work, the process of trying to understand cannot even get off the ground. What we seem to desire is something balanced on the razor's edge between incomprehensible and shallow, something which presents the possibility of understanding as an apparent but ever-elusive target. If we simply valued having correct judgments, we should seek easy-to-understand works. If we valued having correct but difficult judgments, we should seek works that were difficult to understand, but which came with assurances that the task of comprehension would eventually terminate. Instead, we seem to have the greatest esteem for those works that never admit of a completed and finalized set of judgments. We cherish a sort of aesthetic bottomlessness. Our love of this tempting but ever-retreating target is best explained by attributing to us a value for the pursuit, but not the having, of correct aesthetic judgments. And here, I think, we can find a hint about the difference between moral autonomy and aesthetic autonomy. The demands of moral autonomy may forbid us from simply deferring outright. But moral autonomy is usually taken to be compatible with a relatively high degree of guidance, especially for the sake of correctness. In the practice of aesthetic appreciation, on the other hand, we are more suspicious of thoroughgoing guidance and place a relatively higher importance on self-direction over correctness. Imagine how we would feel if the field of philosophical ethics, after a millennia of work, finally came to an agreement about the right ethical theory, and produced a text with careful and convincing arguments that cleared up the major moral dilemmas and settled the major questions. I think we might feel rather relieved. We might even feel that philosophy had partially redeemed itself. I would certainly wish to read it to judge its arguments for myself, and I would be happy if I were to be convinced and all my moral worries settled once and for all and I would wish to teach this book to my undergraduates. I would certainly want them to read the arguments and consider them for themselves, to be convinced through their own process of reasoning. But the availability of convincing, conclusive arguments would be a good thing. How would we feel, on the other hand, if the world of literary scholarship came out with a conclusive analysis of Joyce's Ulysses, which settled every debate, answered every question, and disambiguated every term in convincing and comprehensible arguments? I think I would feel rather sad that the world of the arts had been substantially diminished, and I, for one, would not wish to read it. We pursue moral judgments with the hope of getting it right, but we pursue aesthetic judgments for the sake of the activity of engagement. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.